Good evening, and uh, welcome back to our study on uh, Philippians. And uh, we're going to continue now with Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12 through to 26. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through to 26. I've entitled this sermon, uh, Life is All About Christ. Life is All About Christ. Well, let's hear God's Word together. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full confidence now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You pray with me. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, will you please make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. I am a disciple of Christ. I won't look back. I won't let up. I won't slow down. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sidewalking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, pained visions, worldly talking cheap giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, positions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, top, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean in His presence. I walk by patience. I am lifted up by prayer, and I labor with the power of God. My face is set 
My gaze is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought. I will not be compromised. I will not be deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the sight of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of the enemy. I will not pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. Those are the words of a letter written by a Zimbabwean Christian Christian pastor found on his desk shortly after he was martyred for his faith in Zimbabwe. They're rather quite challenging, aren't they? I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. Is that really the sort of attitude a disciple of Jesus must have? Is being a disciple really that all-consuming? Does being a Christian really mean that level of commitment? I mean, I believe that Jesus died and rose for me. I believe I should serve Him, but surely not to that extent. Surely not to that extreme. Surely I don't have to orientate all of my life, all of my time, all of my resources to Him. Or do I? Well, the challenging point of this section in Philippians is that that is exactly how the Apostle Paul lived. His life motto is there for us in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think it's rather appropriate that it's there on the wall. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is is gain. Paul puts Christ first in everything. And he's not talking here about a super enhanced spiritual life that's only for Christian monks or Christian missionaries or Christian martyrs. No, he's not talking about the life of a Christian superhero. No, Paul is talking about the ordinary, everyday Christian life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Christianity is an all or nothing religion. Jesus himself said this in his ministry. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. There you go. Being in a relationship with Jesus is all or nothing. The Zimbabwean pastor's sentiments are the Apostle Paul's sentiments, and the Apostle Paul's sentiments 
are Christ's sentiments. What we have in the Zimbabwean pastor's letter and what we have here in Paul's letter to the Philippians is an example of life is all about Christ, Christian living. What we have here is an example of life is all about Christ, Christian living. That's the essence of this paragraph in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 26. Life is all about Christ. Now, in the first two sermons in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, we looked at how Paul's prayers are an example and an exhortation for our own prayers. Now, in chapter 1, verse 12 to 26, we see how Paul's life is an example and an exhortation for our own lives. So, the beginning of chapter 1, his prayer is an example and an exhortation to us how to pray. And now, in verses 12 to 26, it's his life that is an example and an exhortation for our own lives. And Paul's life is all about Christ, Christian living, challenges us to do three things. Uh, the three points that I have here are shaped by uh, Don Carson's excellent little book on Philippians. I, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but uh, it's a great little book, Don Carson on Philippians. And uh, these points are shaped uh, by that book. So here's the first challenge from Paul's exemplary life for our lives. Number one, make the progress of the gospel the center of your circumstances. Make the progress of the gospel the center of your circumstances, verses 12 to 18. Let me quickly remind you about the context of this letter. It was written about A.D. 61 or so. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome for preaching the message about Jesus. He's awaiting trial before Emperor Nero, and he writes to this fledgling church in Philippi in modern-day Greece to encourage them in their Christian faith. Paul's circumstances, as he writes, are dire. If he is found guilty, he will be beheaded. So you'd think that Paul would be despondent or discouraged at his circumstances. But look at his perspective again in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do you see that? Paul puts the progress of the gospel at the center of his circumstances. He's got the outward circumstances of his chains, yet he is so positive and upbeat. Why? Because the gospel is advancing. The gospel is progressing. And he shows us that in two ways. First, it's progressing outside the Christian community. Verse 13, it's progressing among the palace guard so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Instead of using his time with the prison guards to gain sympathy or to contest his innocence, Paul has used it to tell them about Jesus. So much so that the whole palace guard, which are the emperor's bodyguard, a praetorium of 9,000 men, and everyone else connected to Paul, 
They have all heard that he is in chains because of Jesus. Here is a man who is consumed by the gospel, so that even when he's in prison, he's taking every opportunity to tell people about Jesus. I mean, just think about that for a moment. He's not really helping his cause, is he? Paul's been put in prison for telling people about Jesus. And what's he doing when he's in prison? Telling people about Jesus. Talk about digging a bigger hole for yourself, which you're already in. But that's what Paul's life is all about. He puts the progress of the gospel of Jesus at the center of his circumstances. Now, let me unpack a bit of what I mean by the gospel, which is what Paul says here in verse 12, to advance the gospel. What does that actually mean? Well, note what it is exactly that the guards know. They don't just know that this man, Paul, is a spiritual man in prison for some religious orientation that he has. They don't just know that Paul's connected to the church in Philippi. No, they know about Christ. They know about Christ. They don't just know that he goes to church. They know about Christ. There's a distinction between knowing that you're a churchgoer and knowing you're a Christian. That is, other people knowing you're a Christian rather than just a churchgoer. There's a distinction. And those of us who have worked or do work in the secular world, we know this distinction. Just think about Monday morning at work. What's one of the first questions you're asked? What do you do at the weekend? What's an acceptable answer? Well, you can say, I went to the cinema. I played some basketball. I caught up with some friends. We went for coffee. I went to church on Sunday. Nobody blinks an eyelid, if that's all you say. Went to church on Sunday. Nobody blinks an eyelid. I remember it well when I was a physical therapist. Monday mornings, I was asked, what did you do at the weekend? And I would always mention I, I was at church. Nobody ever was interested. Nobody blinked an eyelid. And a Christ, Christian friend and I soon realized that we were having no impact at all. So we began to encourage each other and pray for each other that in some way, some Monday mornings, we would mention Jesus. So what do you do at the weekend? Oh, I played some field hockey. I caught up with some friends, went to the cinema. Oh, and Sunday, I heard this great sermon about Jesus. It was about Jesus in the boat with the storm. Just leave it hanging there. Okay, the tumbleweed would blow in. That's what we tried to do. Because my friend and I realized that our work environment was squeezing us into a mold of vague descriptions of our lives, of Christianity, of churchianity. And that's the challenge for all of us in our public lives. Do we speak about Christ or do we speak about the Christian faith? that we have? Do we speak about Christ or do we speak about our church? Do we speak about Christ on Monday morning or will we speak about the church retreat that was a really nice time at Keswick by the lakes? I remember even doing it when I was a minister in Cambridge. I uh, coached a bit of hockey, field hockey, and um, uh, a girl on one occasion 
who was playing in the girls' team, she said to me, um, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm the associate minister of uh, Cambridge Presbyterian Church. Did I make Christ known to her? Perhaps it would have been better to say, oh, uh, during the week I get paid to tell people about Jesus. You should come along some Sunday. I'm the minister of this church up the road. Why don't you come along sometime? Do you see the difference? One is very comfortable. One keeps me in my safe space, doesn't bring me any embarrassment, doesn't make me awkward with that person who's asking me. But mention Jesus, then it gets awkward. But what did Paul do when he was in prison? What are you doing here, Paul? Oh, I'm just some religious matter. Are you connected to that church in Philippi? Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sort of a member there. Yeah, I've preached there once or twice. Yeah, yeah. Is that all that he said? No, they knew, verse 13, that he was in prison for Christ. Not for churchianity, not for Christianity, but for Christ. But that's not the only reason Paul rejoices that the whole of the prison guard and all those in the prison, maybe fellow prisoners, had come to know about Christ, and that's why Paul was in prison. Uh, Paul also rejoices because the gospel is progressing inside the Christian community, not just outside the Christian community. It's progressing inside the Christian community. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's arrest had a positive impact on the church. Instead of Christians shutting up and not telling anyone about Jesus for fear of their own arrest and imprisonment, they're actually doing it all the more courageously and fearlessly. The very thing that should throw water on the fires of Christianity, namely persecution, is the very thing that God uses to stoke the fires of Christianity. Persecution is like the fuel to the spread of the fires of the gospel. It's the same today. Uh, one of the most persecuted churches in the world today is in mainland China. Uh, but where is one of the fastest growing churches in the world today? Mainland China. The present circumstances of persecution cannot stop the advance of the gospel. If anything, they propel it, they enhance it, they progress it. I remember uh, one time hearing uh, a house church leader in China who was asked, uh, how can we pray for you? He himself had been to prison, done time there. He said, pray that the persecution will not stop. Pray that the persecution will not stop. Why? Because he knew that people were being more bold to talk about Jesus because there was persecution. And that's like Paul. He is rejoicing in his circumstances because he knows that other people are being encouraged to speak about Jesus outside in the public square because of his imprisonment. He made the progress of the gospel the center of his circumstances. So let me say to you, whatever your present circumstances are, 
And we've all had quite trying circumstances in the midst of COVID, haven't we? Uh, whether you're at college, whether you're without a job, whether you're having to find a new job, whether you've just moved uh, house, whether you um, have just had a job promotion, whatever your circumstances, wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, even if you don't want to be there, here's the challenge from Paul's life. Put the spread of the gospel first. Realize that God is in control. He is sovereign. None of your circumstances are outside His control. He has you exactly where He wants you to be. And what does He want you to do? He wants you to talk about Jesus. He wants you to talk about His Son who you profess to follow. So use your present circumstances to enhance the gospel. But Paul's attitude and perspective is even more admirable when you consider what is said in verse 15 to 17. Some indeed preach Christ. This is those outside the prison who, are in, who have been emboldened to spread the gospel. Paul says, some of them indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This word afflict here refers to inner distress and pain. The imprisonment brings outward problems for Paul, but the preaching of some Christians brings inward problems for Paul. These people who are doing this are not heretics or false teachers. Uh, Paul will mention heretics and false teachers in chapter 3. No, these are genuine Christians. Verse 15 and verse 17, Paul says they preach Christ. They don't preach another Christ. They preach the true Christ. But sadly, their motives are all wrong. They do it out of envy and rivalry to stir up trouble for Paul and his spirit. They preach with an attitude of one-upmanship. Uh, they preach with an attitude of competitiveness. Let's grow our church quicker and faster so when Paul maybe gets out of prison, he sees that our church is bigger than that other church in Philippi that he planted. That's their sort of attitude. It seems like they're boasting about their own ministry while Paul's ministry languishes in prison. It's as if they're trying to make him jealous of what they're accomplishing while he can't accomplish very much in prison. Don't you love how realistic the Bible is? Think about this. The great apostle Paul is in prison for the faith, and there are Christians trying to wind him up while he's in prison. Isn't it amazing how petty we can be with each other? How competitive? Yet even in these circumstances, circumstances that cause Paul distress, trouble in his mind and heart, probably wasn't sleeping well, even in these circumstances, Paul rejoices. Why? Because the gospel is being preached. Look at verse 18. What then shall I say? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
Christ is proclaimed. Now, it's not that such bad motives should go unchallenged, this pretense, this envy and rivalry. It's not that Paul's not going to deal with that. He will actually pick it up in chapter 2, verse 3, if you flick forward and have a look. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. So he, he's going to address these guys. He's going to get to them in chapter 2. But for now, he says, but you know what? I'm just glad you're preaching the gospel. I'm just glad you're getting the message out there about Jesus. Paul won't let his circumstances determine his outlook. He's put the gospel first. And since the gospel is being preached, albeit from bad motives, he nevertheless rejoices. That's the challenge for us, isn't it? Well, let me paint a scenario for you to apply it to your own circumstances. Let's say another Korean church was planted just down the road from where you are. And let's say they set it up out of envy and rivalry. Let's say the pilgrim church thought, you know what, I know you guys are independent, but we don't quite like that your church is growing as much as we, uh, growing faster than ours. You know what, we're going to plant another young adult's church just down the road from you. How would you feel? They're preaching just to be competitive with you. They're preaching Christ. How would you respond? With resentment or with rejoicing? Would you pray for them to progress and prosper or would you pray for them to flounder and fail because they have such bad motives? Well, what would Paul do? He would pray for them to prosper and progress. I remember the minister that I got to serve with in Cambridge, Presbyterian, uh, Ian Hamilton. Uh, I was the associate minister with him for just over two years. And uh, I remember on Sunday nights at church, he would often, about once a month, pray for all the other churches in Cambridge to prosper more than our church. Beautiful thing to see that kind of gospel-centered spirit. That's the first challenge from Paul's life. Make the progress of the gospel the center of your circumstances. Number two, make the person of Christ the center of your life. Make the person of Christ the center of your life. Verses 18b to verse 21. Paul's future is so very uncertain, there's a good chance he's going to die. Yet look at his perspective in verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. And why? Well, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul rejoices because he will one day be delivered. This is not referring to his release from prison, uh, but rather his final vindication before God, whether in life or in death. That's what he rejoices in for the future. It's what he asks for in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's concern is quite amazing. He's not concerned 
that he be released from jail or that he has a pain-free death. He's not concerned that he doesn't do anything, which one day would, that he would be ashamed of. Sorry, he's concerned that he doesn't do anything, which one day he would be ashamed of. Rather, he, he wants courage that Christ would be exalted in his body, in life, or in death. Here's a man who sold out for Jesus. Paul explains why he has such an outlook uh, on life in verse 21. So he doesn't want to be ashamed of anything. He wants to honor Christ in his body, whether in life or in death. And then he gives the reason. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does Paul mean by this life motto? Well, there are two parts to it, so let's deal with each in turn. Uh, the first is, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. We get an insight into what Paul means from the immediate context. If you just glance back to, what, uh, to verse 18, uh, where Paul says, what then or what does it matter so long as Christ is preached? Surely that's what Paul means here. For me to live is Christ means for me to live is to proclaim Christ to keep getting the message of Jesus out in the open. So that's the first part of the motto of his life. The second, and to die is gain. This phrase should not be understood as Paul wanting to be freed from his present circumstances. Many of the Greeks viewed death as gain because they got to escape the trappings and sufferings of their physical existence. Uh, it's not unlike the assisted suicide a debate today, people wanting to gain a pain-free existence by not having to exist anymore. That, that's not what Paul means here, to die is gain. If I could just die, then I'd be rid of these chains. No, look in verse 23. Paul tells us what it means to gain, to, for his death to be gained. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the true two. My desire is to, to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. In death, Christ would be Paul's gain. Do you see how central Christ is to Paul's life? If he lives, he gets to proclaim Christ. If he dies, he gets to gain Christ. Christ is everything to him, whether in life or in death. It's a bit like a, a bicycle wheel, you know, with the axle in the middle, the hub, and all the spokes around it are all pointing back to the hub. All the spokes of Paul's life, all the circumstances, they're the spokes, and Christ is the hub, the center. And there's nothing in Paul's life that is unrelated to Christ, whether in life or in death. He wants to proclaim Christ or to gain Christ. There's no compartmentalizing in his life. Life for Paul is all about Jesus. This is how Paul challenges us by his life to connect all the spokes of our lives, to go back to that illustration of the wheel, to connect all the spokes of our lives, our jobs, our studies, our money, our mortgage, our retirement, our family, our children, our grandchildren, to connect all the spokes of our lives back to Christ. Because life 
is all about Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain because if I die, I get to be with Christ. Christ and the gospel should be first in all those areas of our lives. This is the second challenge from the life of Paul. Make the person of Christ the center of your life. Make the progress of the gospel the center of your circumstances. And second, make the person of Christ the center of your life. And third, make the progress of other Christians the center of your relationships. Make the progress of other Christians the center of your relationships, verses 22 to 26. As Paul sits in prison, awaiting death, he's torn between staying alive and dying. You see that in verse 23 and 24. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What is so striking here about Paul's evaluation is that it is deeply tied to the well-being of his fellow Christians in Philippi. He says in verse 25, uh, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That is, convinced that my remaining alive will be best for you, I will continue to remain alive so that you will progress and your joy uh, will be enhanced in the faith. There's that word progress again. Do you see it? Or advance. We saw it in verse 12. Here it is again. And there's the word joy has popped up again. Paul rejoices in the progress of the gospel. Verse 18. Paul rejoices that whether in life or in death, Christ will be glorified in his body. Verse 18. And now Paul will remain so that the Christians in Philippi might rejoice. Verse 25. This whole letter is shot through with joy. We saw it last night. Paul prays with joy for these believers. Remember, the mood of his prayers was joyful. Well, now he is seeking the progress and joy of others. He's putting their progress, their joy, at the center of his relationships. Paul is other person-centered, he puts what's best and beneficial for others above his own desires and preferences. Here's another example of how gospel priorities turns your life upside down. For we were made to be God-orientated. We were made to be orientated towards serving others, but sin ruined all of that. It turned us in on ourselves, what uh, Martin Luther called the uh, incurvatas in se. Uh, we were bent in, incurved in on ourselves to only seek our own good. Um, I mean, just think about what you do when you go on Facebook to look at a wedding that you've been at. Okay, not your own wedding, someone else's wedding. And you're flicking through the photos on Facebook. Who, who are you looking for in the photos? Where am I? Which photo am I in? Right, get rid of the bride. Where, 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 where am I? Okay, that's what we do. That's, an, that's a really simple example of just how bent in on ourselves we are, even as Christians. 
But look at Paul. He's outward focused. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about others. That's the great challenge from Paul's life. He put the progress of other Christians at the center of his relationships. Remember a, a dear friend of Jackie and mine, Kerry, a lovely Christian lady back in Northern Ireland, and uh, she was part of a church which wasn't a great church. The, the teaching, it wasn't false teaching, but it wasn't great teaching. And she longed to just leave and go to another church and be fed well. But she stayed at that church. I actually think she's still at the church. She stayed because she wanted to disciple the girls in the Sunday school class that she ran. And she thought, if I leave, these girls are not going to get fed. And so she put up with some poor teaching on Sunday in the service so that before the service, she could serve these young girls teenage girls by teaching them the Christian scriptures. There's a lovely example of someone who put the progress of others at the center of her relationships. That's the third challenge that Paul has laid down for us. Make the progress of other Christians the center of your relationships. That's going to mean reorientating your perspective your time, your resources, your job, to be other person-centered, serving for the sake of their progress, not yours. So, in summary, we've seen three great challenges from the life of the Apostle Paul. We saw challenges from his prayer life in the first two talks, and now we see challenges from his own life example. Make the progress of the gospel the center of your circumstances. Make the person of Christ the center of your life. Make the progress of other Christians the center of your relationships. I will not be deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the sight of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of the enemy. I will not pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the testimony of that Zimbabwean pastor is not the exception to the rule for Christian living. It is the norm of Christian living. We've seen that in the life of the Apostle Paul here in Philippians 1, 12 to 26. As he says elsewhere, and Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. But I wonder how that makes you feel. Challenged? I know I feel challenged by it. Overwhelmed? I'm sure you do. I feel it myself. Well, I want to close by encouraging you. You see, there's something that the Zimbabwean pastor left out in his letter, but that Paul put in his letter to the Philippians. It's there in chapter 1, verse 19. For I know 
that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We're not in this discipleship on our own. It's not our own work. Paul hopes Christ will be glorified in his body through the prayers of others and by the help of Christ's Spirit. God is at work in him to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And that's the encouragement for us. God is at work in us. And it's not a job that happens overnight. We are a work in progress. We are all a work in progress. But remember what we heard about that work in verse 6 of chapter 1. Since God is the one who started the work, the Spirit of God, of, the Spirit of Christ, is the one who will help us continue in the work as our Father brings that work to completion. See, what the Zimbabwean pastor's letter left out was that other people were praying for him, and by the help of the Spirit of Christ, he would die that day for Christ. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so challenged by the life of the Apostle Paul as we read this part of Philippians. And we pray, Father, that you would not remove that challenge. We pray that we would not just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. So let it rest heavy on our consciences, we pray. Help it to change our lives. We pray that your Word would sanctify us and conform us more and more to the pattern of the life of the Apostle Paul, to the pattern of the life of our Lord, who took up his own cross and knew what it was to die to self. So, Father, would you please help us in this regard? But we pray you would encourage us that we are not alone in this, that you are at work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. And we pray that the prayers of your people would be used by you and by your Spirit to progress us in our Christian lives so that we would put the progress of the gospel at the center of our circumstances, so that we would put the person of Christ at the center of our lives, and so that we would put the progress of other Christians at the center of all our relationships. And we ask all of this so that you and your Son and the Holy Spirit would be glorified, one God, world without end. Amen.